looking through the Gospel of Mark, and we find ourselves in Mark chapter 10 this morning. And I very much pray that, that what is shared this morning is spoken in a spirit of both grace and truth. Um, what, what we'll go over, in, in, for some, just instinctively uh, brings some pain, sometimes some, some feelings of shame. And I just really, really have been asking the Lord that His truth is present, but in that His grace is present, because those two things always walk together. So nearly, nearly 29 years ago, um, two teenagers, two teenagers, Randy Martin and Cheryl Freiling, um, stood before... Pastor Ron Lutz and uh, 70-some friends and family during our wedding ceremony. We had very little, very little idea what was ahead. Four children, right now one grandson, business, ministry, me losing my hair. Oh, man, I used to have a good head of hair. <laughs> yeah. if, if only Cheryl knew. Uh, mistakes, failures. Insensitivities, defensiveness, immaturity, and alongside repentance and forgiveness and sacrifice and encouragement and growing in love. We've had many moments of sorrow, many moments of beauty. That's inevitable when you live, share life for almost 29 years. The two of us, but what did we do? What did we do on January 5th, 1991? The two of us with our baby faces, I should have had a picture, <laughs> with our baby faces and zero adult life experience, I mean like zero, said these words to one another before God and witnesses. I, Randy, take you, Cheryl, to be my wife. And Cheryl said, I, Cheryl, take you, Randy, to be my husband, to have and to hold from this day forward, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish, as long as we both shall live. And one of the one of the kind of goofy ways that I continually tell Cheryl that I love her is I say, if we weren't married, I'd ask you to marry me. <laughs> and and that's true. I'd ask her again and again. Um, last week we discussed how different. Being a follower of Jesus is compared to the instincts we might call or the intuition of our broken humanity. And though our salvation is holy, and I'll always emphasize this, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, Jesus never lowers the bar for discipleship. As we talked about last week, that, that our discipleship, our change, our transformation happens within the grace and love and acceptance of God, not outside of it trying to break in. But Jesus consistently points us upward. He consistently points us to the heart of God. Mark chapter 10, verses 1 through 4. Jesus then left that place and went to the region of Judea and across the Jordan. Again, crowds of people came to him, and, what, and as was his custom, he taught them. Some Pharisees came and tested him by asking is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? 
What did Moses command you? He replied. They said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. So we'll notice that our setting has changed. If you've been following along with us in Mark, gone are the shores of Galilee. Mark actually skips some of the narrative that you have in the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, uh, Matthew Mark, and Luke. Um, he, he jumps over some of that narrative. But what we see now is Jesus traveling south. He's, he's traveling through Judea with his face set toward Jerusalem, knowing that he's moving toward what he'll accomplish through the cross. But on this journey, some of the characteristics are the same. He's still crowded by people. He still has a willingness to teach them, whether, apparently whether they respond or not. And he also has some religious elites, this time the Pharisees, that ask him questions. And here we see that they give him a question about marriage and divorce. Divorce is notoriously a difficult issue to work through, to process, to talk about to even examine it in God's word. Um, a married person was once asked if they ever considered divorce, and they uh, replied snidely, divorce, never. Murder, many times. Uh, murder, yes, but never divorce. The Pharisees asked this question, but it's not born out of sincerity. And I think that that's a, really, that's a really important thing to understand when we think about the framework of this text. Jesus is responding to a question that's not born out of sincerity. Instead, it was, it was a test for Jesus. And the word test here means that they're looking to catch him unguarded. That surely Jesus would offend... Did I say something wrong? Okay. I just, you know, I just, my wife whispered something. So. Um, that, that surely Jesus would offend someone. Uh, so to those, those uh, who, you know, maybe he would, if he responded casually toward diverse, people could accuse him, which he, they have already accused him of lax morals. Um, if he was overly strict on divorce, he would be accused of not respecting the laws and provisions of Moses. Maybe, as you remember, uh, now he's in the region of Herod Antipas, and Herod has already had... John the Baptist beheaded, originally jailed because, because he was railing against the fact that Herod's marriage was not legitimate. So maybe they think that he'll get the same treatment from Herod as did John. You know, when we, when we think about this, and I'm just going to mention this quickly, but I think it's important, that there's a lot of people that still try and test Jesus and test Christianity with really sticky questions. And, and there, there's this... There's this there's this question for us to say, well, how do we respond to that? Well, what do you think about gay marriage? And what do you think about abortion? And what do you think about divorce? And what do you, you know, all these kind of hot button issues. And you say, well, how do I respond to that in the Lord? And, and I think, again, first of all, it's in grace and truth, right? In grace and truth. But there needs to be a lot of discernment. And the one thing I want to point out that Jesus does so beautifully well, that's not easy to do, is that he speaks to the motivation of the heart. He speaks to the motivation of the heart. And it's so easy to get, as, as Bob Coppedge loves to say, dragged down into the weeds of, of useless quarrels and arguments, right? But just because it, there's things that trigger in us, and we just automatically respond. But Jesus had such discernment that he says, what's going on in their heart? 
And I think that when we, we have those sort of discussions, we have to be asking the same thing, and we have to be asking the Holy Spirit, amen, the same thing, that we have discernment. Lord, please show me what's going on in the heart. And not just respond to the question, because the question might be spoken out of cynicism, or it might be sp spoken out of, of sincerity. It might be spoken out of hurt and bitterness. It might be spoken sincerely out of confusion. So it's so important to try by the Spirit of God to respond, if you're to respond at all, to the heart, what's going on in the motivation of the heart, if we are to be helpful at all. So Jesus knows their motivations, and he asks these men, he responds to their question with another question, and he says, what did Moses command you? So before we read this, the, the next section of verses, just notice that what they were doing was giving a theoretical question, we love to do this, a theoretical question about some what? Some man. Some guy out there. And what Jesus loves to do is say, well, okay, let's talk about you. Let's talk about you. What did, Moses, how, what did Moses command you? So he brings it from theory to personal. Verses 5 through 12. It was because your hearts were hard that Moses wrote you this law. right? So he's referring to this certificate of divorce brought up by the Pharisees. Jesus replied, but at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and become united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let man not separate. When they were in the house again, the disciples asked Jesus about this. He answered, anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another man, she commits adultery. Jesus asked the men what Moses commanded. And the Pharisees answer Referring to what Moses, what? What? Permitted. There's a difference. What did Moses command you? Well, Moses permitted us, all right, so that's, that's important. In Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4, we see that Moses makes a provision for a man to divorce his wife. If she becomes, and this, this quotes uh, 24, 1 in Deuteronomy, if she becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her. So divorce became then, within that, within that culture, permissible, but the question was, under what circumstances? So the more strict among them... Um, would say that the word indecent in Deuteronomy 24.1 strictly means a, a moral lapse of unfaithfulness. But there were many others, and this is the way many in the culture were beginning to turn, that did with the religious law what we like to do with rules today. And we basically ask, how much can I get away with while still technically obeying the law? So what happened is they started, uh, there was another train of thought that argued to be displeased with your wife could be virtually anything. You could be displeased with um, how her temperament has changed. You could be displeased with how she now looks. You could be displeased with how she cooks. You could be, you could be displeased with almost anything 
and then put her away and have grounds for divorce. So Jesus dives right into the heart of Moses' provision. He says that it's a concession spawned by unresponsive hearts to the heart of God. He says, Moses, Moses allowed that because you had hard hearts. It's what we may call a necessary evil. And I know that might, some of that might strike you as strange that you say, well, wait a minute, that was in the law of Moses, that was inserted, that was God's word. There's some other interesting conversations we can have here. But it was a, a or we might call it the lesser of two evils when facing the alternatives of lovelessness, abandonment, uh, abuse, overt unfaithfulness, and the like. David Garland writes, what Moses commanded was not a compromise, uh, was, was only a compromised situation designed to reduce the fallout from men's hardness of heart. The law was intended to keep the societal upheaval associated with divorce to a minimum. But what ended up happening is a lot of people in the, in the Jewish culture began to even think that, that God was fine with divorce. God accepted divorce. God, God even approved of divorce. That, that, it, was, that it was a right especially of a, what? A man. It was a right, especially of a man. So what happens here is this, this pious religious culture becomes littered with fractured relationships. Not too unlike today, right? So if it, was a, if it was started to be perceived as a natural right, especially of a man, who in that culture is left most vulnerable? The women. The women. In, 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 in the Jewish culture, um, it's my understanding that this was not true of the Greco-Roman culture at the time. In the Jewish culture, only a man could initiate divorce. So it's really, and again, there's a conversation over, as Phil Dunbar used to say, over a strong cup of coffee. It's really an interesting side note to say that Jesus, shockingly at the time, actually lifts the value of women in a backdoor sort of approach as he answers the disciples, because what he does is he lifts the, the, the accountability and value of women to the same place as men in the marriage relationship. They wouldn't have understood it that way. Most Jewish men treated divorce simply as illegal transactions. Their wives were almost like a commodity that they gained. And then if they were displeased with, they could toss aside. And, and, and Moses' concession actually gave a small level of protection for women because then instead of just being tossed out of the street, they had to have this document that said, I have, I have legally put you away. They could actually receive their, originally their original dowry back, though they had no other recourse for resource, and they had the freedom to remarry. Otherwise, they may be completely left completely destitute. I just want to pause here just for a second and, and note that this passage and this teaching for sure is not an exhaustive biblical commentary on marriage and divorce. Um, there are times that even in the New Test that even the New Testament gives allowance for divorce, although it's clear, very clear, that divorce should never be considered God's ideal. And that's kind of what is being wrestled with here. In Matthew 5.32 and 19.9, Jesus references in this same actual uh, type of context that 
marital unfaithfulness is, is the breaking of a marriage covenant and, and grounds for divorce. Even then, is he saying it's the ideal? I don't think so. But I think he's saying it's, it's a breaking of the covenant and grounds. Uh, in Paul's discussion of marriage in 1 Corinthians 7, he refers to those who are deserted in marriage as not being bound in such circumstances. Um, so I believe from that standpoint of that apostolic teaching, we, we can flesh out what does severe neglect mean? What does abuse mean in a marriage relationship? What, is, what does total abandonment, abandonment mean? And are they actually, again, the breaking of a covenant relationship in which a partner or victim, in that case, is no longer bound? But, but the conversation here concerns people who are trying to trap Jesus. And, and with, they have insincere motives and a distorted view of Scripture, which again allows them an excuse to neglect, to love and provide for, who were in that culture their most defenseless. Women, children, as we'll see next week. The little ones, the marginalized, the ones without rights, and, they, and they, they found loopholes in their own law and in the name of religion said they were doing right because they were meeting the letter of the law. So instead of getting stuck in the nuances of, of this, the, the endless technicalities of interpretation that either look to justify religious legalism or liberalism, Jesus points his listeners back to the original intent of God's heart. The Pharisees referred to what Moses permitted, but what Moses commanded was actually found much earlier in Genesis 1 and 2 as he wrote about God's creation of man and woman. Marriage is designed by God as a union between what Tim Keller, and I'll refer to Tim Keller a couple of times. He's got a really good book. It's not scripture itself. It's, it's not flawless, but it's a really good book. Tim Keller's book, The Meaning of Marriage. Uh, the Meaning of Marriage. Um, Amen? Amen, sister? All right, thanks. Genesis. I'll, oh, how beautiful. <laughs> yeah. It is, it is, it's all, it's all, yeah. Yeah. And it's really gospel-oriented, which is so beautiful. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to quote him a couple of times. Um, Tim, Tim Keller, uh, Tim Keller writes that marriage is intended to be a lifelong monogamous relationship between a man and a woman, devised to reflect his saving love for us in Christ, to refine our character, to create stable human community for the birth and nurture of children, and to accomplish all this by bringing the complementary sexes into an enduring whole life union. So what you have is, as Tim Keller would say, the complementary sexes, male and female, two genders, that God purposely created that way so they may come together, put behind them the most natural of their family, family relationships of their parents, and form a new family as they are united. And that word is kind of, actually in the original language kind of means to be glued together or, or, or cemented together. United, a permanent bond. And they come together as one flesh, creating a family that didn't previously exist. And, and this coming together of these complementary genders forms a bond of a mysterious unity. Um, and that is pictured, if I could say, in the sexual relationship. 
And the Bible's not shy about that. Um, It's pictured in the intimacy of the oneness of the sexual relationship. And this is why sexual intimacy is meant to be sacred in, in the committed relationship of marriage. But this oneness goes really goes much farther than physical intimacy. Um, it's meant to be oneness of life, oneness of spirit. So much so, and this is what's fascinating, so much so that God says, though these people are two individuals, I can kind of call them one. It's really remarkable. But what, what does that remind you of? Yeah, it's, it's a reflection of the Godhead. It's a reflection of the fact that though God is triune, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you'll never hear him say, I am three. We see through Scripture the Father working. We see through Scripture the, 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 the Son working. We see through Scripture the Holy Spirit working. And God always says, I am one. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. And this union of one man and one woman is meant to be a covenant relationship before God. And that's a concept that's just increasingly less popular in our culture. Um, It's increasingly foreign to our culture, a culture that cringes when it comes to commitment. And I think that needs to be examined. Again, not in guilt, not in shame, but why is that? There's this idea that we must always keep our options open. Right? We must always keep our options open. And, and again, Tim Keller writes, um, when, when referring to this question of why aren't some people willing to commit to marriage, and I know that's a complicated thing, he writes, someone who says, I love you, but we don't need to be married, may be saying, I don't love you enough to curtail my freedom for you. Because that's what you do. But when two people vow to one another before God, they do so not as just a nice formality and a nice wedding ceremony, but they do so as a covenant promise, making a lifelong commitment to choose love above all else. That no matter what happens, I will love you. As Lewis Smedes writes, I am he or I am her who will be there for you. And it's not just a romantic notion of love, right? It's not just getting together to have sex or to cohabitate. It's, it's, it's passionate. It should be. I think there should be appropriate feelings, but feelings do what? Here, 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 here. It's not just a romantic notion of love. It's, it's to put aside the mentality of a consumer, which is so hard in our culture, that, that, that says that, that a relationship is essentially about my personal fulfillment until I'm no longer fulfilled, and adopts a willingness to be faithful to a promise to pursue someone else's best, no matter what. Even, even in those times when it doesn't seem this, your spouse is doing the same. It's, it's, again, this counterintuitive call of the Jesus disciple to have, as we talked about last week, an ambition not only to put, not to put myself in a privileged position, but to put someone else in a privileged position, even if it sacrifices my own. And if two people do that, 
I am going to work toward your best. I am going to sacrifice my position, my rights for your best. And the other is doing the same. You're going to have a beautiful marriage. And the covenant is so precious before God because it mirrors the covenant he has with his people. It's said in the marriage ceremony that marriage symbolizes up unto us the mystical union between Christ and his church. And the Bible talks in the Old Testament about God it being, being a husband to his people of Israel. And then in the New Testament, you have Jesus, who is the husband of what? The church of you. And that he so loves his people, he has such a, such a dire commitment to the covenant love of his people that he will, as Ephesians 5 says, be willing to lay himself down for you to make you holy. That he would die so that you could live. If two people are sacrificing like that, that's a beautiful marriage. And in the end, the disciples... So again, we should see the Lord is always getting back to the heart of God. Always getting back to the, God's original intent. Always saying, though you are saved... Right? Grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone. You want to you follow me? Seek the heart of God. But in the end, the disciples say, hey, we need some clarity on this. We, 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 need, we need to, you almost wonder if they're like, is this as serious as you're saying? And if you look at the, if you look at the Matthew account, he, they actually say, well, maybe we shouldn't marry. Maybe it's better than not to marry. Because this standard is so high. And then, does Jesus make it easier for them? Heck no. <laughs> he even makes it harder to accept. It's like he's not willing to soften the reality of God's standard to soothe our, our weak consciences or our hard hearts. If, if God joined it, who is man to separate it? David Garland writes, God's will, as Jesus reveals it, invades all areas of life, including what is culturally accepted and legally allowed. Should that response surprise us? I mean, doesn't Jesus say in Matthew 5.20 that your righteousness, that a disciple's righteousness has to surpass that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law? What? i.e. a righteousness of Jesus Christ, a righteousness that transforms me inwardly, and then it expresses that faith outwardly, not just a matter of trying to obey some religious rule book and tradition that I can always find loopholes in. Well, how much, can I, how much can I get away with and still obey the law? No, you're not seeking the heart of God. Doesn't, didn't the Lord just say in Mark that you have to have a willingness to cut off anything that hinders life with God? The disciple says, Lord, what is your heart? I, I want to wrap up with this thought, though, for a minute here. We also have to realize that these verses are at times taken really out of context and misused to shame people and cause injury for those who have experienced broken marriages as if broken marriages aren't painful enough. 
So I would just, if any of you have in your heart this inclination um, that any of you that haven't gone through the heartache of divorce and you might have any inclination to put a scarlet letter on someone who has been divorced or divorced and remarried, remember that the Lord also says in Mark 5, 28, that even when one looks lustfully on someone else, he has already committed adultery with him or her what? In his heart. So I, I think we can think of that picture in John 8 as the adulterous woman is brought before the Lord and ready to throw stones at her head till she dies. And the Lord says, okay, if any of you are without sin, let he be the first to throw a stone at her. And what of those who have failed? And what of those who have been failed? And what of those who are in exper experiencing dysfunctional relationships? Is there any failure outside the reach of God's grace? Is there any failure outside the reach of God's forgiveness and restoration? Isn't it pungent superiority to somehow, to somehow say that my collection of sins are forgivable and somebody else's are not? Well, it's clearly not God's ideal. While almost all of us here have experienced some of the pain of someone in our family experiencing brokenness in marriage, isn't there always grace for anyone who turns to the Lord Jesus Christ? Isn't there always a chance of forgiveness, always a chance of restoration? Isn't that the beauty of the Samaritan woman at the well? Go get your husband. Oh, I don't have a husband. I know you don't have a husband. You've had a bunch. Isn't that the beautiful picture of her returning? Of her saying, maybe I've met the Messiah. Isn't that the picture of John 8? This, this woman who, who, as those men have, have dropped their stones one by one by one, let you who ha is without sin cast the first stone at her. Isn't that the picture of when the Lord, uh, they've all walked away, and the Lord asks to that woman down on her knees, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir. And then he said, being the only one there that rightly could, then neither do I condemn you. Go now, leave your life of sin. Don't all our adulterous hearts need that amazing grace? Sin and shame and guilt have been nailed to the cross. And there they died. And there is no failure, none, that the Lord hasn't laid his life down for. There's no brokenness that he's not willing to enter and restore. And this is a story for all of us, no matter our specific failure. And in the end, we rejoice in this, that God is the perfect marriage partner. <laughs> that he will never relinquish his covenant promise to us. To anyone who will come to him in repentance and faith, because of the blood sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And, and then as Jesus' disciples commit, wherever you're at, wherever you're at, maybe you've been married, maybe you are married, maybe you're thinking being married someday, you say, if I commit to that kind of love promise in a marriage relationship, I can reflect, however imperfectly, 
the God who has perfectly committed to me. And, and that's what God's calling for, that we would know his heart, that, that, that we would have marriages that, that certainly they're not going to be perfect, but they would reflect and give glimpses of the God who is faithful no matter what. To have and to hold, he says, God says this to you, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish, and not just till death, forever. Amen? It is only God who can flawlessly say, I am he who will be there for you. Let's pray. So, Father God, we, we hear these words, and many of us may have mixed emotions because we have mixed experiences and mixed baggage and mixed hurts and pains. And I pray that you continue to enter in to heal, to bring restoration where people think there never could be restoration and healing of what they think is a mortal wound. But I also pray, Lord God, that in this, we still see the beauty of your heart, the beauty of what you call good, and that wherever we are, having been loved by you and set in your grace and having your permanent covenant promise upon our lives, may we set our hearts toward what you call best, what you call beautiful, what you call good, that our lives and our marriage relationships and how we treat one another would not be to put us in a position of privilege, but others, including our spouses. And then in this, people can get just a little glimpse of the God that so loves us. We pray this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.